invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Hey, Sean. It's got an on switch, brother. I just saw that. We'll get it next time, brother. Your prayer was beautiful, though. For those of you that are joining us online, you might not have heard the prayer of confession. Does this need to be here for them, or can I move it over? Can it go that way? Slightly that way? Okay, because I'd like to. I feel centered now. Ooh, I made you move the camera. It's good. It's good. Okay. Pitch him a cave. Oh, you can't set it on top of a cord. That's why they did that. Well, good morning. Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to be adding God's word. I, I wanted to tell you, uh, happy Valentine's Day. I want to tell you that. I also want to tell you, uh, not so happy Groundhog Day. It's up with this ice. Um, very, very cold. I hear through the meteorologists that we might be getting lots of snow tonight, maybe even later this week. You heard that? Yeah, well, stay safe. Take care of yourselves. I'm glad we're here today. Really, I'm glad we're here today. Um, I think we tend to take for granted the regular assembly of the saints. I also think we tend to take for granted, um, boy, I mean, we have so many holidays, but we, tend to, we do tend to take them for granted because there's so many of them. A few of them are quite meaningful. Sometimes it might be overplayed. I mean, we're sort of a nation full of holidays. If we took a vacation day from work every time we had a holiday, we'd never work. Would we? There'd just be a bunch of holidays. But uh, holidays are good, rooted in holy days, supposed to have been. The concept of taking a break from your labor in order to give attention to recreation, rest, family. These are good things. But the concept always has been, as we head toward Ash Wednesday and what some consider the season of Lent and considering Holy Week and moving toward Easter and the so-called Christian calendar, uh, Holy Days or holidays were always meant to be a break from work. They were meant to be a reflection that was significant because normally people work. And I, I hope today to um, really encourage you in your work, and regardless of your age, capacity, gender, vocation, I want to encourage you to work. And Pastor Kurt said something uh, a couple of weeks ago when he preached uh, about from Psalm 127, encouraging parents in their work, but he also generally encouraged folks' work. Uh, we're not always in a parenting stage with little kids at home. I mean, it, there are folks that, that uh, for one reason or another, do not have children. We pray for their blessings, and then those that their children are out of the house, and so that's a different dynamic. You're always a parent, but it's different. You don't have little children at home. And there's some of you in the throes of dragging little ones by their ears to the sanctuary this morning. I saw that happen in the hallway, and I said, I said to one dad, I said, man, thank you. That's a good dad doing that. And That is work. It's true. It's work, right? It's work. Um, I, I think that we need to be reminded, and this is kind of a, a belabored introduction, but I think we need to be reminded that what we are doing is significant because God has deemed it so. And I don't simply mean parenting, as important as that is. I mean work. Whatever you put your hand to. Um, a homemaker, work. It's hard work. Um, working at a factory, uh, one of our brothers 
couldn't make it to the service last Sunday because he was trying to clear the streets because that's part of his work. Significant. Everyday work, significant. And uh, I think the text this morning bears that out. It does it. it, it getting there is going to be a bit of a feat because you have to read between the lines because we're actually going to get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven and consider the second coming of Christ. But some of the nouns and verbs really encourage us for the here and now. And I think both are, are quite important. I just want to say a little bit word word about work uh, from the onset here. Work is going to be one of our points. There are two other ones because I think they have an impact on our work. But before we read the text, let's give a little bit of a, of a context. As a pastor, boy, whether or not to even say this, I wondered whether or not to say it. I'm going to say it anyway. As a pastor, 20, 20 years in April, I've been at this here. Thank you for the privilege. I've noticed over time uh, work is a sensitive topic. And I'd like to give you a little insight into why, from my perspective, having counseled, and I'm not subtweeting anybody, I'm not talking about any one person, I'm talking generally. We weren't all taught good work habits. Some of you were maybe raised with a kind of idyllic childhood where you, you sort of have this relationship with your parents in perpetuity, and if they've gone on to glory, you miss them dearly. But for the rest of us, you know, not say the rest of us, I have parents that I love, but I mean... There's usually, it's usually a mixed bag when you look at it, and sometimes it's quite broken. And so on the one hand, I kind of feel this compulsion, looking at the full counsel of the Word of God, to say to you, if you have parents that have done disrespectable things, that is not a good reason for you to disrespect the authoritative institution of parenthood. You still have to hold up the institutions. Like, the Christian life is not the French Revolution. We're not just upending institutions that God has set in motion, albeit that government or, or business or family, church. We don't just upend institutions. That's, that's not Christian. That's not a Christian response to the frustration in this creation. It's not a Christian response. So we have to honor our father and mother. And you can perfectly well honor your father and mother in their institution as mom and dad, without emulating their ways or even respecting the ways in which they've lived, right? As we become adults, not so much for children in the home now, unless it's some sort of an abusive situation, but by and large, as adults, we can reflect on our family of origin, the way we were raised, and the way that we were educated and taught and whatnot. We can make some kind of value judgments on things that they got right and they got wrong. And then our kids are going to do that to us too, right? They're going to look at us and they're going to be like, well, you know, I think mom and dad got that right and that wrong. And that's part of maturation. That's important. Uh, and they're going to have varying reviews. But there's a few principles here that need to come out, I think, to help us along today. And one of them is honoring institutions. The, the, the institution is not the problem. It's the people in the institution that sin. If God set up mom and dad, if mom and dad sin, it doesn't make the institution of parenthood bad. Right? Um, and then we also just need to be honest. And, and, and really, this is just an empathy and a compassion thing. There's maybe, I don't know, 20% of you in here that just, you've just really never had a problem with mom and dad. I'm just going to ask you to please, like, take your myopic blinders off and realize that about probably seven, eight out of ten of everybody in this room's probably got a problem with mom or dad or both, or maybe didn't really know mom or dad's in a weird situation with it. And some of them were blessed to have people, uh, adoptive, church, family, things kind of fill in the gaps, but some of us really didn't get taught the tools of a good work ethic, like, really didn't understand. And I know that we should not sort of 
pander to a lowest common denominator. We need to elevate. But part of the Christian life lived out in church membership, I think, is empathy for those that, that need to be helped along. You know, I remember, my, I have fairly good parents on this score. I'm not taking shots at my parents. I love them dearly. But I remember one time um, my dad t- tasked me with blading the driveway. That was one of my jobs. Little guy, blade the driveway. Go get on the tractor, blade the driveway. Well, you're supposed to keep the driveway kind of up like this. You're not supposed to just flatten a thing out or indent it in the middle. Well, I didn't have the blade right. So guess what happened when I got done blading the driveway? Yeah, I got, well, I got, you want to say corrected? Hey, it's supposed to be like that, you know? I remember another time Dad had me, because we lived on 30 acres, so I was pulling a hay trailer with a truck, and I remember he, he told me, uh, you know, go around the fence, the edge of the fence, and go over there and take the hay where it's going. So I had a job. This was my domain. Um, 10, 11 years old, whatever I was. I'm supposed to pull this trailer around the property over to where it's supposed to go. Well, little guy, what did I do? I cut it too sharp. I put the edge of the truck into the fence, in the corner of the fence, and dented the truck bed all up and everything else. Well, that was a big mistake Matt made, right? But I learned lessons through that. And what I've found in 20 years, and this is why I, I question whether or not to even tell this story, but I'm trying to create kind of a common uh, parlance here, a way of talking about something I think is very painful. Uh, I realize how blessed I, I realize now how blessed I was, and I haven't always realized this, but I realize now how blessed I was to have opportunities to fail with small responsibilities, to develop confidence, to be able to take a stab at marriage and family, you know? And I realize that now, and I, I don't look down on you if you didn't have that. I hope you don't look down on me if somehow you had like a super gassed up version of that. It was really great for you. I hope we can see together how important it is that we learn God's design for our labor to, to not just be consuming, but to be producing, to, to not just be taking, but to be contributing. And I hope we understand that holy days or holidays are, are exceptions to the rule of work and that God has ordained work for us. And, and sometimes, because we've never really had benevolent correction and leadership in our work, we don't really know how to handle having a boss uh, we're frigid with responsibility with marriage and family. We're frigid with it because we didn't have somebody to, to helping us. And then some of us just flat out rebelled against it too. So I'm not saying it's always the, the, the people in authority's fault. But oftentimes, oftentimes what I've found is it, there is a breakdown. There's a kind of parentlessness that has resulted in the, what is perceived as an insecure or uh, at times even an unconfident or an unwilling workforce. So how do, we, how do we navigate that? And I, I think everything is theological. I think that's what the message is. Let's read Revelation chapter 5. Enough, enough overviews of things. Let's look at Revelation chapter 5 and, and consider these things today. It says in Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14, the whole chapter, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Just pause for a second because I could read on and I will because the text deserves to be read on its own merit. But the, the tone of weeping loudly, you need to bake on that for a second. Something's wrong we're going to preach about. Something's wrong. Something's broken. And John the Apostle realizes it. And his response is a right response for what he sees in that moment. This is, there's a problem. 
a big problem, and it's not fixable by anybody that I know. And he weeps loudly. But the Lord's going to task an elder to do a work here. He tasks all of us with significant work, should we so choose to engage it. And here's what the elder says. And one of the elders said to John, said, don't weep anymore. Stop weeping. Weep no more. Let me dry your tears. Let me, let me walk alongside you. Let me show you something. Behold, imperative verbs here. Behold, weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. I've titled this sermon, Ransomed People for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you've made them, you've made them kingly priests, a kingdom and priests to our God, kingdom of priests and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. On the earth. You remember that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They shall reign on earth. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of the angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, numerable, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A sevenfold tribute. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, all creation, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. A fourfold tribute from all the creation. Verse 14. And the four living creatures, all that is in the earth, the four corners of the earth, picking up on the prophet Zechariah, the four living creatures said, you say with it, Amen. Isn't that wonderful? So be it, truly. Amen. And the elders, representative of all humanity, all redeemed humanity, the ransomed people of God, they fall down and they worship. Okay, so let's take this on three parts this morning. Let's look at how this gives shape to our weeping, our emotions, our feelings, our weeping. If you want to use alliteration, W, weeping, in verses 1 to 4, weeping. And let's look at how this text shapes your, your work your labor that I introduced the sermon with in verses 5 through 8. And then in the long part, verses 9 through 14, let's look about how this shapes our worship or where we give adulation. If you want to use alliteration to try to hang with the flow of the sermon remaining, look at weeping, verses 1 to 4, 
Work, verses 5 to 8. And worship, verses 9 to 14. And so let us together now take it on its, its parts. First of all, the way that this text right here that we just read, four read, shapes our weeping, our emotions, our feelings. We all were born, far as I think it, crying. I don't know that there's too many children that are born that, that don't, are not born crying. And in fact, um, it's a deformity, a lack of care when children are taught not to cry. In fact, they cry until they're old enough to have cognition to think the thing ought to have governor on it. We're just sort of born criers. Uh, and I think sometimes we realize that there's a, a polite society in a way in which particularly men, but also women, we're not just supposed to be uh, cry babies. And I think there's something to that. Uh, there's, a, there's a functionality to that. But at the same time, there's appropriate times, places, environments to cry. And there is something deformed where we not cry in those environments. And so, you know, I kind of have this old Scotch-Irish work ethic thing going on, and my version of masculinity is real men don't cry. I didn't know that you thought Jesus was so weak. I mean, the Bible says in that short, snippy little verse, right, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. John the Apostle is an 80-something-year-old manly man, probably working with his hands on this rock island quarry of slave labor called Patmos for the Roman Empire. And here he is on the Lord's Day, caught up in the Spirit, worshiping, giving us this book. This is not a weak man, I don't think. I don't see how that would be even possible that he would live such a long life. And same as you could make it very short sentence, Jesus wept. Here we could say, John wept. There's an appropriate time for men to cry. And there's something deformed when we don't. This is not only an appropriate time, it's an appropriate reason for a real man to cry. And I want to show you how. The Net Bible says, from the immediate context, it's not possible to determine whether the scroll in question had seven seals on the outside or whether the scroll was sealed at seven points throughout. However, since according to chapter 6 of Revelation, which we'll get into next, the seals were broken one after another, it would appear as though the scroll had been sealed at seven different places as it had been rolled up. The ESV Study Bible, which we have at our bookstall, we encourage you to use it. Study Bible notes say, A scroll written within and on the back is like the scroll given to Ezekiel. Talked about in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. But it's atypical of most ancient manuscripts since the irregular texture of this reversed side, uh, either leather or papyrus, made them hard to inscribe. But, however, such a doubly inscribed scroll would resemble a Roman will or a contract deed, and the context contents written in detail inside, inside the scroll, and summarized briefly on the outside, then seal were sealed with seven seals. The scroll John sees could symbolize like a will that is to be opened and its contents then executed, or it could symbolize God's covenant with, with mankind, with humanity, with the covenant curses that will be poured out due to mankind's breaking of the contract. In a broader sense, the scroll contains God's purpose for all of human history. The seven seals prevent the full disclosure and enactment of its contents. So there's a, there's a plot tension here. Who's going to open this scroll? It's essential that this scroll is open. Do you, do you have a longing 
for justice? Do you have a longing for justice and righteousness to reign? And if your answer is yes, then the, as a person, as people of God, you have to feel the tension in this plot that, that John can't see any of the creation, not a single person, none of us that's worthy of opening the scroll and executing this wonderful, perfect, sovereign plan. Now, what's in the scroll? What's it talk about in the scroll? Hendrickson talks about it like this. He says, In the right hand of the Father lies the scroll, and it represents God's eternal plan, as we've already intimated. His, his decree, which is comprehensive. It symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history and concerning all creatures in all ages and to all eternity. Being full of writing on both sides, the scroll is pictured as being entirely sealed with these seven seals. So who's worthy to open this scroll? You notice in chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 2, that, that John sees and shares with us and we thus see this mighty angel, perhaps Gabriel, but an angel, proclaiming with a loud voice, and so not a soft tone, it's an intrusive, it's a precise voice. It's not a voice that's wishy-washy. It's, very, it's loud, it's clear. There's no backing away from this. It's this statement, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? There's this drama in the throne room vision that John has that we have here in Revelation 4 and 5. Who's worthy to open it? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one past, present, future, no one was able to open the scroll or look into it amongst the creation. And so John appropriately cries. His emotions are channeled toward the fallenness of humanity. His emotions are channeled to what Galatians describes as the human condition in light of the law. See, the law can convict us of sin. We can't fulfill the law, but the law can't save us. The law is a kind of schoolmaster to ready us to receive the gospel. And this text has got the gospel in it. But you can't skip over, gloss over the law as if it has no function in the life of the people of God. It does. It, it reminds us of, of, of what the scholars call biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of the nature of humanity, the nature of a man. And the nature of a man, biblically speaking, is utterly fallen. We're broken. There's nothing in us that fixes us. Something would have to fix us from the outside because in our fallen human condition, we can't fix ourselves. And at certain points in our lives, we rightly get reminded of this simple fact that we are sinners. And the brokenness isn't, at that point, just a platitude or some kind of a simple affirmation and some creedal statement. But the brokenness is personal, and it's emotional. I think of the moment of gospel conversion, right? When you were converted to Christ, were you not deeply in touch of your fault with your fallenness? Now, whether or not you cried, it was at least worthy of tears, right? My brokenness, my fallenness. 
Who of us could ever come to Christ in pride? Who of us could come to Christ without a realization of our fallenness, of biblical anthropology, to use the $10 phrase, of our sinfulness? John is in touch with the fact that nobody can fix creation in the creation. That we're doomed. And we, not just at gospel conversion, but I believe throughout our lives, come into touch with that again and again. There are certain spots in our journey as believers where who can open the scroll? Like I've been working, I've been working, you know? And I'm not whistling while I work. This is hard. This is grindy. I'm in this and I'm in this. And, and sometimes we, the right emotion for us, because we're trying to be faithful, we're like John. You know, I think of Elijah in the Old Testament, you know, that classic passage in 1 Kings 19, 18, where he's just done all this wonderful work for the Lord. And then he just gets in a fit of kind of spiritual depression. He runs away and he's, he's like uh, the Jonah thing, like under a broom tree, so upset because he just, he's just downtrodden because his work for the Lord, no less, but his work has gotten him down, and he's, he's, he's mad, he's weepy, he's emotional, and the Lord, the way he encourages him, he comes along and says, hey, you're not alone. Lift your head. There's 7,000 other knees that haven't bound to Baal. Like, you're not by yourself here. Lift your head, Elijah. Lift your head, John. And that's the beautiful thing. It's, it's for us, though. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's autobiographical, too, because in the Christian life, don't you know that we reach these points, you know, experientially, where you're back in touch with your brokenness, same as you were when you came to Christ. And the gospel, then, is for your entire life, A to Z, because you don't outgrow the need on the Lord's Day to be reminded of the fallenness of yourself, your inability, and your need for the Savior. That's important, isn't it? Now, we short-sell it sometimes, but we do it to our own detriment. We must return again and again to the law so that we understand we're lawbreakers and our great need before the Lord. We can't open this scroll. We can't bring final justice, the right plan of God. We can't fix fallen creation. Structures put in place by God, such as, for example, the institution of parenthood, of marriage, those structures right away fell into disrepair. Frustration was wrong, but the institution itself is not wrong. Redemption is what was needed. It is needed. All needs redeemed. Just the same as Revelation 4 was about the creation and finding our worth in, the, in our meaning and existence from having been created by God's will. We talked about that last week. So this week we talk about how not just our existence matters, but our actual work matters. What we do with our time matters. There's meaning to everything that you do. If, if you're a child, there's meaning to cleaning your room. There's meaning to falling underneath good, benevolent authority and obeying your father and mother. There's meaning to that. If you're a teenager, there's meaning to whatever your first job is, whatever it is that you, whoever you take instruction from, there's meaning to you handling this authority, this domain that you've been put in some responsibility of with, with dignity, doing everything you do is under the Lord. There's meaning to every last bit of it, your first job to your last job. There's meaning for the widow that's shut in because she has the, the dignity of prayer as a work. The widower, he has the, the responsibility of prayer as a work. 
I get ahead of myself because I'm talking about work and I'm also talking about weeping. I'm about to conflate my two points. Let me just finish the first and move to the second one. There's a time to weep over the fallenness over our condition, the fallenness of humanity, because that weeping reminds us again and again, especially each Lord's Day, of our own insufficiency for the task of fixing the creation. Even as we work with our hands, we're insufficient to fix it. So, you know, I was, I've, I'll say it like this. Um, I'll say it like this, but then we'll move to our second point. I was at the, uh, the, the, the pastor in the county called me and asked me, if I would pray at the Hovey House for one of the commissioners' meetings, it was my schedule to do it last week. So I went up there, 9 o'clock, said a prayer to open the session. Kind of a, a, a bit of a perfunctory, perfunctory role. You say a prayer, you leave. It's not like I'm running the meeting or anything like that. But the Lord impressed upon me through his word, after having read Revelation 4, to remind them of something that I'm not going to remind you of. And I said it in my prayer. I said, you have a, an authority that is derivative. You have, you have a responsibility, a domain, and it's important. It's not unimportant, but you really can go at it fleet-footedly. You can go at it more joyfully if you realize that there's this authority over you, and you're allowed to do what you do on earth, in your sphere, because he has so decreed it. So when you, when you when you work at your work, whether it's that, that commissioner role, whatever their agenda was, or it's, it's your homemaking, or it's your child rearing, or it's your marital development, but, you know, when you take time to listen to your spouse, when you, when you meet the needs and love of the people around you, when you work, it's not trite to be reminded of Colossians 3.23. All your work is done as unto the Lord. All of it. And our second point, I'll introduce it this way, with regard to our work itself being shaped by the reality of Revelation 5. But I want to talk to those of you that I have a lot of respect for, uh, well, I have a lot of respect for many people that are in this room and watching. I have, I'm inspired, frankly, by your attempts at faithfulness because I know, it's a, I know it's a slug. I know it is. I've been at this 20 years. I told you earlier, I, I know I've heard from you. I listen. It's a slog. It's hard. Getting through, it's, not, it's just not a cakewalk. But I want to talk specifically to those of you that have pretty well arrived. I mean, you've arrived at the point where you, you have a career. You're basically healthy. You have validation in what you do. You're sort of in the middle of this thing. I just want to speak to you for a moment. Please, 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 don't slip into the subtle pride of patting yourself on the back. You're worthy of, of honestly, you're worthy of being encouraged. I'm glad for what you do. But remember how you got to where you are. Somebody tolerated you knocking the hog back out of the middle of that driveway when you were a kid, didn't they? Somebody tolerated you. Somebody allowed you to live after denting up the backside of dad's pickup truck, didn't they? Right? I mean, couldn't you just round it off, son? I mean, did I have to tell you everything? You know? I mean, somebody, somebody, I remember my first job. I'd never owned a new truck, and so... My boss, I was working for, well, it was not my first job, but it was one of my first jobs. I was working for an asphalt company, and my boss had a brand new construction truck. Well, I'd never been in a brand new truck. Well, I, I'll never forget this. It's, you know, it's the little things that stick out in your mind. I, 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 I slammed the door to the truck because I'd never owned, or my family never owned a truck, that we had nice enough vehicles, but they weren't brand new, as I recall. You'd have to kind of slam them, especially Grandpa's trucks on the farm. You'd have to slam them to get the door to shut because the thing wouldn't shut otherwise. So I slammed his door, and immediately my boss, 
who's since passed away. He was a good boss, kind of a quiet guy. He looked over at me and said, hey, Matt, don't ever slam my doors again. <laughs> well, well, you know, oh, whoa, you can't talk to me like that. I'm 20 years old and bulletproof. What are you talking to me like that for, you know? Well, what did he teach me? How to treat a new truck. I'll never forget about the hinges on a truck because my boss cared enough to tell me not to slam the door. You say, well, what does that matter? Everything matters. It all matters. Every little jot and tittle, it all matters. Nothing's lost on the sovereign. You're where you are for a reason. I know how to handle new truck hinges now. I don't have, you know what? If you don't slam them, you don't have to slam them. They stay kind of, they shut easier if you don't slam the door. Eventually, you know, that's just little things. But here's what I'm trying to say to you. I haven't lost my place. Basically functional, middle-aged, breadwinner perhaps. We need you desperately to be humble about the place that you are and to have some level of patience and compassion for the younger ones in our church that were not necessarily afforded the same or maybe just didn't take advantage of the same opportunities to learn the dignity of work that you have. Will you have patience with the members? Will you? Will you teach them some things? And sometimes even tell them some things that they need to hear, but they're going to have too much pride to hear. You know you've got to kill your pride, don't you, young people? You gotta, it's got to die. Pride doesn't have a place in heaven. We don't take pride there. We don't have reason for that, right? That's not for us. Pride's got to die. You know what God says? He actually opposes the proud. So if you're filled with pride, God's opposed to you right now. You know who he gives grace to? The humble. Pride creeps into our lives, in our competencies too. So I'm talking to both sides. We need to be in this together. This is kind of a kind of cooperative for learning the dignity of work and learning how to work. In this uh, second point, let, let's get back to the text because I, I feel the need to be textual at this time. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. So he stops him from weeping. He says, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. The evocation there is from Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, where you would have thought that Jacob would dole out blessings on Joseph because of how awesome Joseph was and all he had endured. And this tribe of Judah is going to take the prime of place through the canon of Scripture. And John the Apostle knows it. And he's being told by a faithful elder, Hey, don't cry. Remember the messianic promise in Genesis about the line of the tribe of Judah? I'm going to show you how that's fulfilled. How about the root of David? You want to go back to Isaiah, 2 Samuel 7? Let me tell you how that's fulfilled. I'm going to tell you about that now too. I'm going to lift your eyes from the frustrations of this world and our inability to fix it all through our own work. And I'm going to show you how significant your work is as derivative to Christ's finished work. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. You remember all those challenges and comforts that we made in Revelation 2 and 3? I want to remind you that it was actually the lamb that was walking among the churches telling you how you should live. And I want to remind you that your attempts at conquest are wrapped up in his conquest. And it's here so that, the therefore of this, so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. He's the only one that can open it. You know, just as a, as a thought here, uh, the, the work that Christ has done on your behalf is the catalyst to a better attitude about the work that you have to do. As long as you're trying to work to earn your salvation, you're never going to have any joy in your salvation because you can't earn it. 
Your works toward your salvation are cause for, for weeping. I can't, I can't fix that. I'm a lawbreaker. Then when you realize the need for a Savior, you are perennially, and especially on the Lord's Day as we come together, you're perennially reminded of His work, and therefore you find meaning in your work as you pursue sanctification, as you pray and sing. Well, let me talk about those works here that you get to do. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lane a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You might summarize it. Slain lamb standing. What a visual, right? I saw a slain lamb standing. And it says here, it says, with seven horns, so horns, rams, power, with power, all powerful, omnipotent. The omnis are on display here. He sees everything with seven eyes. The eyes are everywhere. Seven spirits, probably meaning the spirit, the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is on display here. But he has the spirit of God sent out into all the earth. So this slain lamb standing sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the Father who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, remember last week we talked about 12, 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles, probably the combination of the 24, the people of God, these, these representations of God, and probably also representatives of all the angels here. So you have all of the ransomed people of God, all the angels in view. And here, these 24 elders thus fall down before the Lamb, and they're holding a harp. Uh, so, so a word about a harp, I mean, that's an instrument. So whether it's strings on this, this beautiful baby, baby grand right here, isn't that what it's called? I think I got that right. Those strings right there, stringed instruments. That's what happens when I riff. I should stick with my notes. Are the strings back here? It's a bass. What do you call that little thing, Jonas? That, a mandolin, yeah. Uh, a guitar, I know about that one. I'll play that one a little bit. So these strings are being used to worship the Lord. That'd be just amazing. So if heaven's going to have harps, if the Psalter has harps, I think it's probably okay for us to have some strings too, don't you think? Shouldn't overpower the voice, that's for sure. This is a great instrument. We should sing. I don't think, I don't know. Just the thought. You can send me an email if you don't like it. Actually, send it to Kurt. Just send it to Kurt. He would, he would rather sift that email, I'm sure. So, so they have harps. There's, so there's, there's singing the word, if you want to look at that. There's, there's about to be praying the word, the golden bowls full of incense. There's more about this in Revelation as we go, but these are the prayers of the saints. So you've never done a work of prayer that is lost on God. You've never done a work of singing that's lost on God. This is part of it. So just before we move on to the last point, which is encompassed in verse 9 and following, I want you to see this scene again from the diagram that I showed you last week by William Hendrickson. Can we pull that? Are we able to pull that up, Angela? Yeah, there you go. I maybe can see it better this week. I didn't, uh, didn't get it up there right last week. But so I'm looking at a print copy of it. Yeah, you can see these, centric, these circles going out. And Revelation 4 and 5 describes this. It's really begun in chapter 4. Let me just tell you what Hendrickson says. Because he can't say it better than he does. He says, this is the universe governed by the throne. This vision in Revelation 4 and 5 consists of one single picture and teach one main lesson. The center is the throne with steps leading to it. In the center of the throne sits the Father, chapter 4, verse 2. The innermost circle, the sparkling white diamond, chapter 4, verse 3. Circle 2, the sardius. Circle 3, the emerald rainbow. Circle 4, the four living ones, or the cherubim. 
Circle five, the 24 thrones with their elders. Circle six, the many angels. Circle seven, all the creatures in the entire universe. So that spans from the beginning of chapter four to the end of chapter five, which fits together as a, as a piece within Revelation, one section. And, and he speaks of this. He says the seven lamps are as a, as a sea of glass also before the throne. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And the Lamb stands between the throne and the living ones on the one side and the 24 elders on the other. But the, la- the Lamb now advances to the throne. Last week it was the later, later he would. Now in, in chapter 5, he advances to the throne. Chapter 5, verse 7. And is now seated on it with the Father. We see that in Revelation 22.1. And the throne rules over everything, over all. So we need to take this lesson to heart. The throne rules over all. Hendrickson goes on to say, quoting Charles Hodge, the great systematic theologian, the land came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who was seated upon the throne. This very clearly refers to the fact that Christ, as mediator at his ascension, received authority to rule the universe according to God's eternal decree. It refers to the coronation of the ascended Christ. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, and as a result, for his redemptive work, Christ on ascending into heaven, received for himself the kingdom as predicted and promised during the old dispensation. This does not mean that God the Father leaves the throne, but it does mean that Christ the mediator is seated upon the throne together with the Father, and from this moment on, it is the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 22.1 reads this way, if you want to note Revelation 22.1. And God governs the universe through the Lamb, and this is Christ's reward and our comfort, and it means that there is the beginning of a new era in heaven, Revelation 24, and also on earth, Revelation 22 and 3. A most significant moment in history is this coronation, the mediator's investiture, his giving of the office of the king of the universe. I just read that to you. I couldn't say it more beautifully than the now passed away in the glory William Hendrickson. Verse 7 describes this and notes are the importance of singing and praying to the Lord is even as a work. It's a labor, but it's a labor of love. It's something we're privileged to do. Now, before we take on um, the following verse, I want to say just a brief word here to preview the work of evangelism. Uh, we have not been relieved of the duty to share the gospel with the nations at this juncture. We are to take the gospel to the nations. And that, is, that requires work. And it also requires a willingness to, to, to work through hardship as well. We talk a lot about evangelism, but not so much about suffering for the cause of evangelism and missions. But I think biblically and historically these two go together. Maybe uh, thinking about ditching the modern books urging strategic evangelism and maybe take our cues from the voice of the martyrs. Look at the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and look at what they went through. Look at the recorded works of church history. Faithful Christians shout a better evangelism strategy that we through hardship advance the gospel, through offerings beyond tithes, through labors beyond work in the workforce, through sending missionaries or going ourselves supporting and praying. We talk a lot about evangelism and we talk some about suffering, but we seldom talk about evangelism and suffering as part in God's providence of the plan for getting the gospel to missions. And we need to, ha- we need to restart that conversation. And I'll tell you why. Look at the next verses. So we've talked about the shaping of this passage for our weeping, our emotions. We've talked about the shaping of this passage for our work, 
more generally. And now we want to talk about the shaping for our worship. Everybody's worships something. Everybody worships someone, whether it's self, it's achievement, it's fame, whether it's some particular family member we're beholden to. Everybody worships someone. We were made to worship. Adulation needs to be, first and foremost, given to the one that's worthy. And when we come into touch emotionally with our inability to keep the law, when we come into touch that to, with our work, that it's, it's really meaningless and temporary if God doesn't give grand meaning to it all through his meta story, his meta narrative, then our worship can be again and again returned to its right place to the Lamb. And so here's how it works in heaven. And on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's us, folks. That's us. We're the ransomed people of God. And we are represented in this drama. And it says here that the ransomed people of God is not just us. It's church, underground churches and meeting churches full of people small churches, larger churches, all over the world, the ransomed people of God from every generation, from the four corners of the world, every tribe and tongue and language, and people and nation. That's why there'll be no room for an ethnocentrism in heaven. Heaven is diverse. It's linguistically brought together. This is a, this is, there's no room for racism in heaven. There's no room for us to take our pride into heaven. There's also no call to use racism as some kind of a billy club on earth either. We are to treat people the way that we want to be treated by way of the golden rule, irrespective of what our skin color is, irrespective of what our mother tongue spoke language-wise. Heaven reminds us that we're going to share eternity with a panoramic, like a, 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 this vast view of God's created people. There's going to be redeemed people from all over and there's going to be redeemed people from all generations. And there's going to be redeemed people from, from different nations. Nations that have ceased to exist and still exist. And this is, I mean, it's beyond our scope. Heaven is going to be infinitely interesting. I've told you before from this pulpit, when I was a little boy, I worried about going to heaven and getting bored. It's not going to be boring. There's no boredom in heaven. There just won't be any band-aids in heaven. There won't be any boredom in heaven. It won't be bored. It's infinitely interesting. It's not like the best of this life, like it's some kind of a reunion from when you were perfectly 19 or something. No, it's not like that. It's going to be better than the best of. This is going to be where the brokenness of humanity is finally fixed. The way Eden was perfect before Adam and Eve sin, so we're going to be saved to sin no more. Isn't that good? That's why we war against sin right now. And you know, we don't just sing saved to sin no more. We also ought to sing saved to sit no more. We don't just sit on the sidelines. We're in this thing. Everything we do matters as unto the Lord. And we need to be calibrated every week around our prayers and our songs and our missions and our evangelism to be enduring hardship because it matters to God. Now it says here in verse 10, And you have made them, see, derivative, he has made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Ruling co-heirs in heaven. We're a part of this thing. And they shall reign on the earth. Heaven, earth, there's some symmetry. We need to think about our eschatology as we walk through Revelation. 
It's a false view of heaven to think you just sit on a cloud, that there's some purpose to this whole thing, there's some economy to it. It's a false view of heaven to think that there's no heaven-earth symmetry. Like that we need to get our theology right so that we can get our work right. We can get our assurance right. We need to assure it again and again and again. And, and this text is an assuring text for the people of God. And it says, And I looked around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering innumerably. Luke and Hebrews tells us innumerably. In the interest of time, we won't pull the Hebrews passage up right now, but Hebrews 12, 22 through the end of the chapter. Uh, talks about this innumerality of innumerableness of, of angels, and then talks about the consuming fire worship, and then it, it kind of ends in chapter 13 with uh, in, show hospitality to people because you never know when you might be entertaining angels. It's this beautiful verse in Hebrews 13 too. So this is thought about angels. Uh, there's, some, there's, some, there's some continuity between what's going on here and there. You know, the Bible says that, uh, that when, when a lost sheep is found, that there is emotion in heaven. You remember the angels rejoice? So there's not a lack of symmetry between what you're doing and what's being done. Uh, regardless of, of your view of the millennium or your, 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 your view of even how to read Revelation, we've talked about that from the beginning. We'll talk about it again as we go through it. You have to affirm there's, there's some continuity between the worshipful people of God here and what's going on in heaven and what's coming. We walk by faith and not by sight, but it's surely coming. Here it is. And, and then finally, when you look at, um, at verse 12, saying with a loud voice, again, this refrain, worthy is the Lamb. It's all about the Lamb, the worship of the Lamb who was slain. And he gets this sevenfold tribute to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Finally, our, our worship is complete. It's seven. It's complete. Sevens are all over Revelation. And then there, there's this uh, sense in which the whole creation, probably in like a Philippians 2.11 sense, there's a sense in which every knee will bow and confess the sovereignty of the Lord, whether they worship Him in a, in a saved sense or not, there's not going to be a single rebellious sinner that is able to stand at the glorious presence of the second coming of Christ and His reign. We're all going to fall. And i say something before. I, I have to say this at this point in the sermon. If all of this sounds like you're on the outside looking in, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never received His gospel for your conversion, it feels like you're on the outside looking in because you are on the outside looking in. And you can't claim the promises granted to you by the Lamb because you don't yet know the Lamb. He takes away the sin of the world and He wants to take away your sin. And He does it by you accepting and receiving what He's done on your behalf. It becomes reality for you when you stop trying to save yourself and when you realize the sweet exchange that took place at Calvary on the cross and you receive him. Get to all to receive him, the gospel of John says. He gives the right to become children of God. Children, once you trust him, once you trust the lamb for your salvation, once you accept him, Follow him all the days of your life. Hardened older person. Won't you trust the lamb? Won't you receive him? Won't you join the throngs of angels and ransom people of God in singing this chorus? Worthy. 
Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's do it willingly now. Let's know Him as Savior and not know Him as Judge. Let's worship Him now. It becomes such a shaping lens for all of our pursuits, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It really does. The, the elders fell down in worship. The four living creatures said, Amen. And we say amen too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what you have shown us in Revelation 5 is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what's to come. What you've granted us by your grace is opportunity to have meaning granted to our feelings, to our frustrations with our labors, and to our pursuits of adulation and worship and worth. I'm going to ask, Lord, that you would help our people take hold of these truths and live them out in such a way that it would be obvious to the onlookers that they are yours and that they would glorify you on the day of your visitation. I pray for the new believer to follow you in baptism, to become participants in the Lord's Supper. I pray for every worker in this church. I pray for those that have recently been diagnosed with sicknesses, those in the throes of seasonal anxiety, those struggling because of recent loss of loved ones. I pray for our missionaries, and I pray that you would help us to send more missionaries to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us now remain seated and take 30 seconds to reflect.